This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the What Did Larry Say to Joe episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, much of which is about Larry and Joe. But there's also other dramatis personae here, not least of which ourselves. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. Emily Peck is also here. Hello. Elizabeth Spires is here. Hello. We're going to be talking about Larry and Joe and the Inflation (laughs) Reduction Act. We're going to be talking about the GDP figures that came out, which were negative. We are going to be answering a reader email, because we do love your emails, about corporate landlords and whether they are evil. We have a Slate Plus segment on college tuition. It's fun. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, I was shocked. Elizabeth, were you shocked? Sure. (laughs) I was shocked when, when the announcement came out this week that Joe Manchin had changed his mind and that suddenly this enormous bill was like moving ahead and there was a very good chance that the Democrat controlled house and senate might both pass this huge bill which has a huge climate component and it has a huge tax component and it does all manner of wonderful things and i was like wait is there some like fabulous unexpected good news (laughs) yeah the amazing thing is that apparently he changed his mind after talking to larry summers who convinced him that the package wasn't inflationary I have a thing in my newsletter this week saying, is Larry Summers now a hero to the left? (laughs) I think Larry Summers is now a hero to the left and Joe Manchin, too. I think everyone was just as shocked as Felix by this, especially apparently Republicans who passed some other bill. The chips bill. bill. Yeah, Um, we should talk about that, too. Yeah, I don't know that he's a hero to the left. I would say (laughs) now cinema is, is the bad guy. Well, we we will see whether she votes for this bill. But I feel like the Republicans hate it so much that she kind of has to, right? Just to own the the GOP somehow. Well, there's some conspiratorial, you know, speculation that she will eventually switch parties. So who knows? The big picture here is that we have this good old-fashioned leftist interventionist government again. We did the CHIPS Act over largely Republican opposition, although a few of them voted for it, which is basically America saying, we don't believe in a global free market for computer chips. We want to spend tens of billions of dollars to onshore the computer chip industry, which I think actually does make sense. You can't have every single computer chip in the world being made in a small island that is about to get invaded by China. That doesn't make sense. So we had that, and then... And apparently, I don't really understand the politics, Elizabeth, you can explain this to me a bit better. But apparently, Mitch McConnell only supported that because Joe Manchin said that he opposed this other thing. And then the minute that Mitch McConnell votes for that, Manchin comes out and says, ha ha, psych, and then supports this other thing. And then supports this other thing. Yeah, this is how Manchin behaves as a matter of course. So it's shocking and, and utterly unsurprising. But, you know, that kind of favor trading, I think, or just trying to anticipate what everybody else is going to do. And then you have a last minute surprise like that is, I, I think, uh, you know, it's unusual. I mean, I, I was I was surprised at what put Manchin over the line. Being Larry Summers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was all really surprising. It was kind of 
delicious that the GOP was like fooled and had the rug kind of pulled out from under them because maybe so, Mitch McConnell is not the evil genius that people <laughs> make him out to be. Yeah, it was a, a rare moment of evil geniusery from the Democrats. <laughs> Should we talk about what's in the bill? Should it yeah. pass? Yes. So, yeah. so the main thing that's in the bill is basically a massive investment in greening the country such that if all goes according to plan, U.S. carbon emissions will be 40% below 2005 levels by the end of this decade. And that's huge. And Biden has promised 50% below. So that takes us most of the way there, just like this one bill alone. Does that stop warming? It means that the U.S. has basically gone from very near the back of the pack to very near the front of the pack in terms of reducing carbon emissions and getting the world on track to meet the Paris goals. Are we going to meet the Paris goals? Probably not, but every like increment that we can get in that direction, especially if it's a big increment like this, helps. It's right. not a binary thing. It's not like, will warming be stopped or not? No, it won't be stopped, but it could be a lot less catastrophic. Right. Do you think, I mean, so this bill has not actually passed yet. Like we said, cinema kind of holds it in our hands right now. Not to mention like various people in the House as well. There's a bunch of hurdles it needs to get through. Yeah, I think the Democrats can only afford to lose four votes or something for it in the House. But I was wondering if the reason this is so ambitious and it may even get passed in the Senate is because we're really living through climate change right now. It's impossible to deny that you see extreme weather events happening. I mean, as I was coming in to record today, I was reading about Kentucky having people dying in floods. There's something every day. There's fires, storms, hurricanes. I mean, it, you cannot ignore this I think anymore. I think there's something to that. There was a time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, when I thought that a large chunk of the United States would be among the few winners from global warming, that global warming would be terrible for the Ganges River Delta and would be terrible for all of these islands that drown and would make large chunks of sub-Saharan Africa completely uninhabitable. But, you know, the Great Plains and a bunch of the sort of agricultural breadbasket of America and that kind of stuff would actually become more productive and we all have air conditioning and probably things would be fine. And I no longer believe that. I think there was maybe a handful of places in Canada which, you know, might possibly benefit from global warming. But the number of beneficiaries is tiny and the United States is clearly not one of them. It's clearly getting worse. I, you know, would like to think the far-sighted, noble lawmakers in the deliberative upper body of parliament have done the good thing for the purpose of the long-term future of the country. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I suspect that Elizabeth is going to tell me that's incredibly naive. No, it's always about aligning incentives. You know, you note that the, the new bill includes a lot of clean energy tax credits. That's uh, one way to do it. You know, if you can line up climate incentives with something that, you know, Republicans will get on board with because it's profitable for them. Although there is going to be zero Republican support for this. <laughs> I mean, literally zero. What? So, yeah, can but you... they're not trying to, if they know it's going to pass, there there's also some politicking around what goes into the bill and what doesn't, even if they don't ultimately support it. So I know that <clears throat> car buyers will get tax credits to buy electric vehicles, like 
And big ones, $7,500 tax credits. Big big tax credits, but only for like the relatively cheap vehicles and not if you're like making $300,000 a year. Yeah, this is also a really good thing because so much of the EV market right now is concentrated for understandable reasons by the, like, given the fact that it's just physically not possible to make an enormous number of EVs right now, the manufacturers are making these $100,000 EVs because that's where they have the biggest profit margins. Mm -hmm. That isn't going to move the needle on climate change at all. Mm -hmm. They're saying, you know, if you spend less than like $50,000 on a new car, then, you know, or even a used car, then you get the tax credit. I like that a lot. And there'll be also tax credits for clean energy companies. Can one of you explain a little bit more to me how that would work? There's a smorgasbord of tax credits and also loans. There's They're doing that thing that we did in the top where we leverage $25 billion of, of government money into $250 billion of loans to clean energy companies and that kind of thing. So that will help. Then we should also talk about the great white whale of income tax policy that we've been working on for how many decades and this loophole might finally get closed? I don't believe it'll ever get closed. (laughs) Felix is talking about the carried interest tax loophole, although if you work in private equity, they would say it is not a loophole, whereby if you work in private equity, you pay a 20% income tax, basically. Basically, yeah. Instead of a 37% income tax because you count your income as capital gains. So yeah, so your income is taxed as capital gains, which is totally unfair, I think, although maybe a bunch of private equity people will DM me like how a bunch of to startup be honest, CEOs DM me last week. When I talk about this to private equity people and hedge fund, uh, yeah. not hedge fund people, like, this is a common fallacy, by the way, that this doesn't benefit hedge funds. It only really benefits private equity and venture capital. But if you talk to those people like in private, they'll be like, yeah, of course, it's indefensible. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and then in public, they'll say like, we're supporting a small business. And they're like, fuck off. You know? <laughs> But for years, I mean, I remember when I was at HuffPost and Romney was running for president, it became like a big issue. Right, because that's how he made all of his post-tax money was by paying this low, low capital gains tax. Yeah. And then every few years, I think 2015 or 2016, Democrats tried to pass something. It got killed. I think Trump... Trump even was against the carried yeah. interest tax loophole and, and tried to put it, it in his thing. Yeah. And somehow it died. <laughs> Everyone supports this and yet nothing changes. I always expected that if it were ever to die, it would die the backdoor route, which is by just bringing capital gains taxes up to the level of income taxes and making them the same. Mm. And then if you just did that, which there's a lot of good reasons to do that, then it would be moot and mm-hmm. it wouldn't. no one would care. I didn't expect them to do it this way. Well, I would say they're not fully closing it, okay? They're adding provisions that kind of mitigate mm-hmm. the issue. You know, they're changing the holding period for which investors have to hold on to their investments before they can reap the benefits of the loophole from three years to five. I mean, how much is that really going to do? But wait. You know, I overstate it as closing the loophole. It's more like shrinking it maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've, yeah, no, I, I, given the number of billions of dollars in taxes that are at stake here, you can be sure there's going to be a lot of very highly paid accountants trying to find ways for the private equity executives to continue to save money on their taxes. We, it remains to be seen how successful this attempted loophole closing will be. Although the CBO has scored it. They say it's going to come up with an extra $14 billion in 
tax revenue, so that's not nothing. Right. And also the other tax provision that people are talking about in this bill is raising the corporate minimum tax to 15%. Which is huge. This is like an absolutely massive deal. This was basically agreed a year ago. This is Yellen's great contribution to international diplomacy, right? She basically went around the entire world and said, listen, we'll do it. Can you all do it too? And everyone said, yeah, okay, if everyone does it, we'll do it. And she basically got everyone to agree that corporations should pay a minimum of 15% of their global profits in income taxes somewhere. And then Manchin killed it, and now it's back. That seems like it'll be just really hard to enforce. It's not, actually. The Are you one, sure? The wonderful thing is that once it's on the books, let's say that Amazon has an Irish subsidiary, and let's say for the sake of argument that Ireland hasn't signed on to this deal, right? And Ireland has a 0% income tax, and Amazon puts all of its European and African profits into the Irish subsidiary, and then all of those profits wind up not being taxed. And Ireland gets no tax revenue, right? But then, under the law, by law, what the United States government has to do, given that Amazon is an American company, is look at Amazon's global profits and say, you need to pay 15% of those profits somewhere. If you're not paying them in Ireland, you have to pay them to us. Do you think American companies are going to, any of them are going to re-domicile themselves elsewhere because of this? Does it seem like it's But no, it doesn't, that's the whole point, right, is that it doesn't help. You have to pay, wherever you're domiciled, you have to pay at least 15% of your profits in tax to someone. That's the whole point. And there are actually provisions in the way that this thing is structured so that if you go completely batshit and try and domicile yourself in some like tax haven somewhere, like that doesn't work either. So all these new taxes make this bill inflation fighting. I want to talk about what yeah, I'm saying we, is what, that, what did Larry yeah. say to Joe? <laughs> I want to know what Larry also, said to Joe. Yeah. I also think this is partly just a rebranding exercise, like changing it from the Build Better Back Act to the Inflation Reduction Act is marketing to some extent. But it's good marketing. I mean, yeah, no, people I, I, want to I reduce the inflation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're really trying to make inflation I'm happen, aren't you? really trying to make inflation happen, but someone told me that I can't spell it out. It's impossible. So let's try and make it happen here on this podcast, the inflation. <laughs> but I mean, it's smart. Build Back Better kind of feels out of date now because we're back. I don't know if we're better, but we're definitely back. <laughs> Something has been built. So it's time to turn the page and, and reduce inflation. And reduce inflation. And my question is, does this, could this reduce inflation? And I say yes. I'm going to say yes. I, like, for instance, <laughs> There is a very important provision, another thing that people have been trying to do for as long as I can remember U.S. politics, which is a long time, which is allow Medicare and Medicaid to negotiate prescription drug prices. That alone will bring down inflation significantly. Yeah, it will lower prices. Yeah, inflation is prices. Prices going up. Yeah. This would be prices going down. Exactly. So that does seem like it would do the job, right? And if you get less climate change... Prices will go up less, too, because—and Felix will tell me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, but I believe that climate change exacerbates inflation because it makes things more costly. We're seeing that right now with the price of food. Yes. So there you go. Like, you have to fight I mean, climate change if you want to fight that, That's like a, a multi-decade thing. That's not so? going to bring down inflation <laughs> in the next like couple of years. But, yeah, I think you could 
tie me to a torture device and start pulling out my fingernails. And eventually I would say that, yeah, Larry Summers was probably right. <laughs> it, will, was right. it will bring down inflation. I mean, he has to be sometimes, statistically. Even a stopped glug. <laughs> what do they say? If you leave a monkey in a room with a typewriter for long enough, he'll eventually do Shakespeare or something. Um, Not that Larry Summers isn't. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was right about the inflation, too. I mean, it was really bad. And everyone was wrong about it, including some people in this room. I, I, I am being looked at. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Emily, really, Emily is giving me the side eye. I'm just, I mean, everyone was wrong about inflation pretty much, except for Larry Summers and all the other people. Who- Larry was vague enough about inflation to be almost guaranteed to be right. Because notably what he did is he warned about inflation in early 2021, a year before Putin invaded Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And he never said when the inflation would arrive. And then it arrives, you know, 18 months later, after Putin invaded Ukraine, he's like, you see, I was right. It was this bill back in January 2021. It's like... Also, when you say that there's a 50% chance, I mean... Larry always does the the, the even better than the 50% chance thing. He, He does the one-third chance. He's like, there's a one-third chance there will be inflation, and there's a one-third chance there's going to be a hard landing, and there's a one-third chance we'll be fine. You're like, thank you, Larry. That's very helpful. (laughs) Should we do a segue now? Okay. Okay. Okay, so the other thing we were going to talk about super related to inflation is the GDP numbers that came out earlier this week, which showed that the U.S. economy has contracted for two quarters now. And some people believe that means we're in a recession. And some people say we're not in a recession. But none of that really matters. It just means the economy is kind of doing not so great right now. But the economy is doing pretty well. I mean, that's the thing about recession is that it's also just a measure of broad-based health of the economy. So we have one metric that says we could be in a recession, but not by a lot. Yeah, if you if you take out just the inventories, right? Like, mm-hmm. American businesses contributed to their inventories in the second quarter, mm-hmm. but they contributed to their inventories at a lower rate at which, than the rate at which they contributed to their inventories in the first quarter. This is really boring technical stuff, right? But that alone, that decline in the rate at which inventories are growing was more than enough to push the GDP number negative. Mm. So that does not have any actual effect on the day-to-day lived experience of Americans in America. So Mm. people saying like, well, we're in a recession, so shit's bad. Like, it doesn't affect the labor force. It doesn't affect prices. You know, it's just a question of like supply chain management, really. Everyone kind of ran down their inventories during the recession. Now they're building them up, but they kind of built them up and they're building them up more slowly now. That's a business cycle thing. It doesn't mean recession, but yeah, you're right. We've had two quarters of negative GDP growth. Only, you know, obviously, well, it's obvious to me, not obvious to everyone, highly positive nominal GDP growth, right? Nominal GDP was up 9% year on year. It's only when you try to account for inflation, which is non-trivial, by the way, trying to work out the inflation component of that. They don't use CPI, they use something else. They do a bunch of sums and work out that net is negative. But like, there's a lot more money sloshing around the economy and economic 
activity than there was. It's just after accounting for inflation, it feels lower. There are yeah. other things that are slowing down also, though, Felix. It's not just inventories. The housing market is slowing down. I've written about this. And that's intentional. That's what the yeah. Fed wants yes. to happen. So the housing market is slowing down. And some commodities, the prices are well off where they used to be. Like lumber, for example, is like— Oil prices, gas prices. Oil, gas, like all those commodities that companies buy to make stuff, they're all a lot lower now, cheaper. I would, I would really— is lower. Well, not for gas, but yeah. Not for gas. And um, consumer spending, once you account for the inflation— <laughs> <laughs> TM. Um, once you account for the inflation is also down because people have less— actual real money to spend because of the inflation. Also because inflation is such a big factor. It looms so heavy in in the minds of consumers. Mm. You know, right now, 65% of people think that we're in a recession. So whether we are or not, you know, that could have an effect of becoming a a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if it really affects how people control their spending. Well, that's what's interesting, too. Though spending is down, spending on goods is down, spending on services is up. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, Marriott and Hilton, all those people are making yeah. money hand over fist. All of the airlines are overbooked. In fact, and then if you look overall at spending, if you look at the earnings from Visa and MasterCard and Amex, you know, how much people are spending on their credit cards, it's going up a lot. Like, whatever they're not spending on widgets and toys and stuff for their homes, they're spending on services. So people are spending. It's just the transition from goods to services seems to, like maybe they're spending a little, the the increase in money that they're spending on services is smaller than the decrease in money that they're spending on goods. I think everybody has sort of different metrics that they use to decide whether we're in a recession. You tweeted something about Bill Ackman having a specific, what was it? Oh, his corporate audit went up in price. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like he, Bill Ackman is this is this billionaire hedge fund guy, and he was on the tweeters, and and he was saying one of my companies because when you're Bill Ackman, you own you know a portfolio of companies of as you do. One of my companies just had its corporate audit go up in price. That's inflation. We need to worry about this. I'm like, relatable. Here's relatable. <laughs> my my inflation hits home thing that happened to me recently was I was at a pool for my daughter's swim meet. I went to the snack stand and I got a can of Pepsi and a small package of Sour Patch Kids. Don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) And it was $5. $5 for a tiny candy and a can of soda. And I was just like, you're lying. I had like a back and forth with the kid, like 15-year-old who was working the stand, but it was $2.50 for a can of soda, which is Maybe that was a seller-induced inflation. But it was a public pool. It wasn't like I was at some fancy place or an airport or something. It was just a public (laughs) pool. I couldn't believe it. I think it worked out to like 35 cents per Sour Patch Kid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you did that, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway. I'm sorry, but I guess the bigger question is just, is the economy doing good or bad, right? That's really the question. And I think the answer to that one (laughs) is yes. (laughs) I mean, I'm actually kind of serious about this. I've got this in my newsletter this morning, is that we're in this weird time right now where it's impossible to create a narrative that really explains everything that's going on. You can't sort of say, oh, oh, now I understand it. You know, it, it's it's very messy. Everything's in flux. There's a bunch of different data points that are pointing in very different directions. And we're just in a very confusing and chaotic time right now, economically speaking. And trying to sum it up with, like, are we in a recession, yes or no, is a mug's errand. We stopped the economy in 2020 and restarting it 
it's not just like yeah. going back to the way it was. You know, like when you when you pull the starter on a lawnmower or a chainsaw or something, and then it's like you know, it's a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> have you um, ever mowed a lawn? Um, I think we should we should we should move swiftly on before I have to answer that question and answer someone else's question do you have a better question that you can ask me I don't have a better question but a listener has a better question for you Felix from Albert Albert. listener Albert hi Albert Albert hopes all is well he was looking into a recent congressional probe of corporate landlords that was just came out this past week and their aggressive eviction practices. I was hoping you could revisit what I have long considered one of Felix's most controversial opinions, which is that increasing corporate ownership of American housing stock is a good idea. Yes, Felix, I read this report and I don't see how you can defend your stance, but Go ahead. So the report basically looks at <laughs> it looks at four big companies who are corporate landlords who own a variety of different kinds of house, like single family houses to apartment complexes, and it looked at their behavior when the CDC's eviction moratorium was in place. So what happened was these corporate landlords still tried to evict people about three times more than they originally reported, about 15,000 people, and it could be more. And the way they did it was pretty underhanded. In one case, calling Child Protective Services on a family in an apartment to get them out. They hadn't done anything that would... Did they actually do that, or did they just write that in a list of things that they might do? I was a bit confused by that in the report. If you read, I think, a line in there that says they actually did it, and they also, like, posted notices saying that the eviction moratorium had been thrown out in court when it actually had not been thrown out in court. Well, it had, but it was stayed pending appeal, Mm -hmm. and yeah. Yeah, and no one knows how much of the intimidation that these landlords did like how many people just left? Because well, we do know that. That's the whole point. They said that 6% of the people got evicted, but in fact, it was 26% of the people yeah. wound up leaving. Yeah. And the large chunk of that one can only assume was precisely because of these tactics. Yeah. So we, they did actually do a pretty good job of quantifying it. It's a good report. It is a good report. And it looks very bad for your friends, the corporate landlords. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... The, <laughs> So the first thing I I really want to say here is a lot of the behavior that was outlined in this report is genuinely terrible. And I'm very glad that Congress looked into it and what these people were doing was bad and they shouldn't have done it. Totally agree on that. I think the congressional report does spend a huge amount of time like counting up eviction notices, which is like, yeah, you've made your point. What they get around to mentioning like two thirds of the way into the report is that these companies had a policy, which I will agree is a very terrible policy, that the minute that you are 10 days late on your rent, the first thing you do is you hand over an eviction notice. And no one really expects people to go, oh, shit, I'm evicted, and then pick up and leave just because they're 10 days late on their rent. But what they had was this policy to have like a zero tolerance attitude towards any kind of rent arrears and to start eviction proceedings immediately, like within 10 days of like a single rent, missed rent payment. And this does not make sense to me, right? I don't entirely understand why they did this. And I was reading the report and I was trying to get a feel for why they were doing this and I couldn't. And I was reading a few of the sort of contemporaneous local press reports about this as well. And again, I couldn't. So I'm unclear why they did this, but I do agree that especially during a pandemic, they should not have been doing it. I was a renter until last week for my entire life, and I've had small landlords and big corporate landlords, and our last landlord 
had exactly that policy. Ten days. You know, they also made it, sometimes it's difficult to get in touch with the company. You know, they'll set up LLCs so that you can't, if there's something wrong with your place, you have a little bit of trouble finding who can fix it. And, you know, they do have an incentive to do that to some extent. If they if you're in a tight housing market, they think that they can raise the rent of the apartment immediately. Absolutely. And, and so that was my first hypothesis was that rents were soaring and they reckoned that if they kicked the current tenants out, then they could replace them with people paying a lot more. Mm -hmm. But then I looked at where these places were and when they were doing this in the midst of the pandemic. And I mean, maybe that's true, right? Well, my former... Uh Boss, erstwhile Democrat Jared Kushner's company got into big trouble mm. a few years ago for doing this in a suburb of Maryland, I think, where it wasn't a tight housing market, but it was still, it, there was a documentary about it, point of their strategy, and they, they were using these kind of harassment tactics to get tenants out of their apartments, was to slightly upgrade the apartments and then put it in a completely different class of rentals that would be just much more expensive. So I don't even think it's prerequisite that the housing market has to be tight locally for right, that to happen. Be, but in general, you have to expect that the rate you could charge is higher than the rate you are charging. Sure. And one of the hypotheses, let's say, of the people who say that corporate landlords are worse than individual landlords is that corporate landlords are obsessed with maximizing rents. And that makes this kind of behavior more likely. But the flip side to that is if you are in a place with a corporate landlord who is maximizing rents, then when you rented that place from the corporate landlord, presumptively, they were maximizing rents when they rented it to you. <laughs> and there isn't a whole bunch of money on the table that they can just collect by kicking you out and putting in a new fridge and renting it to someone else at twice the Well, it's not just rate. that, though. It's also about how they service the places. If you have a smaller landlord, you're more likely to have a direct relationship with them. They're more likely to care about whether, you know, you're living in a broken place. And, and I think if your entire objective is profit maximization, there are things like not repairing basic infrastructure, neglecting repairs that need to be done that happen with corporate landlords that, in my experience at least, are less likely to happen if, if you have a small landlord and you know them and you so, have a relationship so, with them. So that is exactly my answer to the listener's question, right, Albert, is we don't know. This like more likely thing that Elizabeth is talking about is entirely sort of like N equals one anecdote. I will say for basically certain, I will say like with 100% certainty, that the very best landlords in America are small individual landlords and that the very worst landlords in America are small individual landlords, right? The small individual landlords really do span the entire spectrum. I will also say with a fairly high degree of certainty in situations like the pandemic that if you are a small individual landlord and you lose your job and you really need the income, then you are squeezed in a way that corporations aren't squeezed, mm -hmm. right? That you can't let things slide for a few months because you have as big money issues as your tenants. And that makes things extremely uncomfortable for all concerned. And there were genuine hardship stories during the pandemic of landlords who are like, I can't live, I can't feed myself because my tenants aren't paying rent, I'm not allowed to evict them. Now, my reaction to this is not, oh, you poor thing, I feel sorry for you. My reaction to this is you shouldn't be a landlord in the first place. You don't have the risk profile to be a landlord because if you want to be a landlord, you should be able to cope with people not paying rent for a few months. You should be able to have things empty for a few months, you know, that kind of thing. So what we're seeing here is presumptively 
the four worst corporate landlords in America. Like that's presumably why Congress picked on them, right? Mm. If they were the worst ones, then they would have picked on those ones instead. We're not seeing the black rocks in the big private equity companies, right? We are seeing like some bad players and we are seeing, as I say, a slightly overegged, like there's definitely anecdotes. There's definitely like this thing was bad, this one thing that they did, this other thing that they did was bad across a portfolio of whatever it was, 100,000 houses across all four landlords, right? Statistically speaking, if you look at 100,000 mom and pop landlords, you could find that number of bad instances but of behavior as well. But it's not the bad instances. It's the eviction rate that we're talking about, so, right? So, right. And so we, During the, a moratorium on evictions. The eviction rate actually turned out like the eviction rate, yes, was bad. It wasn't quite as bad as the report. Wasn't it over 20 percent? No, it wasn't. Precisely because the eviction notice came out willy-nilly whenever you were 10 days late. A lot of those uh, eviction notices just saying. like the rate of eviction notices was very high. And then a lot of these places were relatively low-income rentals where there is a natural churn anyway. So that delta between the 6% who were actually evicted mm-hmm. and the 26% who left, we don't know how many of that extra 20% would have left anyway and how many left only because of the harassment and the bad behavior. So yes, it's high. Yes, it was too high. Yes, they shouldn't have done it. Do I think that in general, one can extrapolate from these four corporations to corporate landlords as a whole and say they are all terrible? I am not convinced of that. Well, I don't think you you really have to do that. All you have to do is look at federal tenant protections in this country and and compare it to comparable developed countries. So in Germany, 55% of the population rents. In Berlin, it's 82%. And that's mostly because they have stronger tenant protection laws, which is part of the point of this report is to try to change that here. Oh, absolutely. And like, like you will find no one more in favor of moving to a German-style system of renters than me, right? This has been the thing that I've been saying for literally eight years on Slate Money. Is the home ownership rate in America is too high. More people should rent. And in order for more people to rent, you need more stability and permanence in the place that you're renting. But... To my point, if you want to move to that kind of a system, then the risk profile of the landlord and the amount of time you're like tying your money up if you own that property is just not something that lends itself to individuals. You basically need corporate landlords in that situation. If you go to Germany and you talk to anyone who's renting in Germany and you ask them, like, who's your landlord? They'll be, they'll give you some company. That's how it works. Yeah, but there are also sort of different incentives there. Like, you can only deduct your mortgage interest there if the property you own is being rented out. So I think that mm. creates different different incentives. Look, if, you, if, you're, if you're trying to tell me that Germany has a better <laughs> system than the U.S., I couldn't agree more. But that doesn't answer the question about in the U.S., is it better for a landlord to be individual or corporate? And in fact, as I say, like at the margin, it probably militates in favor of corporate landlords because they have the long-term time horizons that you need in order to be able to operate that kind of a portfolio. It sounds like you both kind of agree because it's not about really – who owns the building, corporate person or mom-pop person. It's about the regulations that dictate how that landlord can and can't act. And in the U.S., especially in the states and locations where these four really bad actors operate, the laws really favor landlords, and there's very little protection for renters. You notice that New York isn't really mentioned, I don't think, in that report, no, because yeah, New York has yeah, very exactly. strict Exactly. It's all places where was it? it was like— 
Alabama, or mm-hmm. Mississippi. And, yeah, yeah, where you can really just kick people out of their homes with very little notice and they don't have a right to an attorney or anything like that. And in fact, there are only a few locations in the country where you have a right to an attorney if you're going to be evicted. And also protections that the federal government put into place for renters. I mean, there was a lot of money, but it was slow getting out to the states. The states were slow to implement it. And a lot of the problems that took place for these companies was was that a renter would be like, my money's coming because the Mm -hmm. assistance was on the way, but it wasn't there yet. And they were like, well, we don't have it, so you have to go. If we had efficient regulation, it, it wouldn't matter who the landlord was. Yeah, I agree with that. On which note, we should probably have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? Yes, I have a number. It's $1.53. That is the wholesale price of a pound of chicken wings in the northeast of the United States, <laughs> according to data that Bloomberg ran on Friday. And it's interesting because it's down from over $3 last year per pound, which sent the price of chicken wings soaring and was a big story for those of us who follow chicken wing stories, which for some reason I do. Are you, are you a chicken wing I, <laughs> I always will read a good chicken wing story. So yeah, I saw this on Friday and I was like, oh, I have to tell everybody the price of chicken wings appears to be coming down, which could be a good sign for the inflation. <laughs> <laughs> also, I want to tell listeners that I have never mowed a lawn either. So I have no mowed shade. a lawn. Good for you. You, you have? Well, like, I've mowed lawns with old-fashioned push mowers. You I just, have? I just don't think I've mowed a lawn with something where you have to pull I've never filled the gas and stuff. Yeah, not the self-powered ones. When yeah, I grew up in a rural area, so there's always things to cut and mow and so on. Elizabeth, what's your um My number, number? is 10%, which 10% of all McLaren P1s, the supercar, ever made are registered in Montana because if you register your car there, they don't charge sales tax on personal property, so there are tax advages. But also, wait, wait, what, does, you not, what does that mean you don't charge sales tax so on personal property? So if you buy property? a supercar that's titled in Montana, you don't have to pay sales tax on it. So there's just no sales tax in Montana, basically. Pretty much on personal property. Well, not, no. so oh, not oh, you mean oh, you mean as opposed to like buying from a company? If if I buy yeah. from a store, there might be sales tax. But if I'm buying from a person, I don't need to pay sales yeah. tax. I and see. Okay. also, there are no emissions tests for uh, carbons, so you can get away with supercars that do not meet standard climate regulations. What's a supercar? Just an insanely expensive. Luxury These are like, you know, million-dollar cars that go 200 miles an hour for no reason. Like you tap on the accelerator and just like, vroom. Yeah, that's what a supercar is. <laughs> Things Sounds James great. Bond would drive. My number is 899, which is the number of days, according to the State Department website, that you need to wait if you apply for a visitor visa to the United States in Santiago de Chile. That's a long time. Now— well, I will hasten to add that if you are a Chilean, you don't actually need to apply for a visitor visa to the United States because they're part of the visa waiver scheme. So it's not obvious what this actually refers to. But if you look at other countries that aren't part of the visa waiver scheme, like Istanbul, there's a 477-day wait for visitor visa. The State Department has just basically broken and it doesn't work and they don't issue visas and they take years to come through and it completely defeats the purpose of trying to issue visas. And I don't understand why Tony Blinken hasn't fixed this. So, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> why is it broken? Did Trump break it? I suspect that Trump <laughs> broke it, yeah. I think that Trump broke it 
in his two terrible secretaries of state broke it kind of deliberately and it's much harder to build back than you might think but still come on people get your act together we are going to have a slate plus segment on college tuition Oh, yeah. yeah, there's a really good article in Slate about tuition assistance and merit aid and this kind of stuff. Now, it's all a, sh- a sham and a scam and a fake. So we're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening to Slate Money. Thanks to Jessamine Molly and Seaplane Armada and Merit here in the studios in Brooklyn and everyone for making this happen. And we'll be back with you next week with even more Slate Money. Okay, Slate Plus folks, go to slate.com because you have your Slate membership by definition since you're listening to this. You don't need to worry about the paywall. And you should read the story saying that... Just say the title. College tuition is a scam. The title is, and this is one of those really short, punchy titles, the single most important thing to know about financial aid, it's a sham, says Kevin Carey. (laughs) And... That more or less sums it up, right? Yeah, we don't need to say anything else. Yeah. The the idea being that basically for the vast majority of colleges, like the ones that aren't Harvard or Yale, they just need to fill up and they're finding it difficult to fill up. And they reckon, like any other retailer, that if they offer discounts, you're more likely to attend. And so when they send you a letter in the mail saying, congratulations, you've been qualified for financial aid because your parents don't make enough money or you're good enough at school or whatever it's all a sham it's not actually that they're looking at any of that they just reckon that if they send you that letter you're more likely to go to that college yeah it was a really good piece and i think we talked about ron lieber's book on the podcast and he kind of mentioned this too he gets into this but basically this piece really like goes deep on People have this idea that financial aid is given to people who need financial aid, but in the private college and university sector, that's not actually how it works. Felix said only in the Ivy Leagues, you can get genuine tuition assistance if you are needed, if you need financial aid. But for these other private schools, they're offering financial aid and scholarships to kids from families who probably could pay for school and they're doing it to get people to come to their school. They're basically, it's like any other retail good where things go on sale until someone buys them. And colleges now have very... Is that that a Dutch auction? (laughs) Is it? I think that's a Dutch auction. You start the price off high and you just lower the price until someone grabs it. I mean, but that's how retail, I mean, that's how it all works. And they have colleges and universities have like sophisticated algorithms and marketing departments where they figure out like consultants don't forget the consultants consultants where they figure out like oh we should send this kid a $35,000 scholarship and he has a great example at the front of the story where he talks about this one kid from an affluent home who gets offered a $35,000 break on tuition at this one college and then compares to this other girl who gets no offer from this college but who is genuinely in need of financial assistance. And it is kind of shocking because even though I read Ron's book, still in my head I had it that, you know, my kids... Are gonna we're gonna fill out a FAFSA form. Well, you are that they, they are definitely gonna fill out the FAFSA. But they form. use the FAFSA form to just market you these yeah. different discounts. They don't yeah. use it to actually be like, well, they need financial yeah. help. I, I think I went to Duke and a lot of financial aid. The way that they would calculate it had a lot of subjective things in it. You would fill out the FAFSA, and they had an algorithm 
But they would also tell you, like, this doesn't work for you. Come back in and we'll talk about it. And there would just be questions about random things. And I, I, the year that I matriculated to Duke, uh, only 17% of the student body was on any kind of financial aid. So they also had sort of weird rules. Like if you had a car on campus, you couldn't get a parking space if you were on financial aid. They were trying to dissuade you from spending money on a car that you could give to Duke, which is <laughs> sort of irrational for those of us who it would cost way more to get back and forth if you were flying. Yeah. You know, there, there were all these sort of factors that were not necessarily quantitative that they would use to decide. Right, but that's, but that's like the high end. That's like explicitly the kind of university that we're not talking about here, where there are many more applicants. Yeah, and places. I'm saying yeah. th- those are the places where it actually is the closest to yeah, it's still based weird. Yeah. It's still weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, all, it's always weird. I don't have a problem with it being subjective. I just have a problem with this, to Emily's point, you, using all of this incredibly sort of private financial information as a marketing data pool device oh. thing mm-hmm. rather than as like a way to calculate need because they present it as a way to calculate need but really it's just a way to calculate how much they can extract from you the cost of education has outpaced the inflation already inflation. but <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the these sort of artificially high prices are kind of shocking yeah. the prices uh, the, in the, the article rates. yeah for the rack rate, but, yeah, but, a but year. that's the that again is part of the marketing right the, yes the idea yes. is that people are more likely to go to a college if they're told that it's $75,000 a year, but they get a $40,000 discount than if they're told it costs $35,000 a year. Because the 35000 thing, they're like, that's like kind of meh. Whereas the seventy, this is a $75,000 education I'm getting, and I'm only having to pay 35000 for it. Wow, that's a bargain. <laughs> I'll definitely take that. Yeah, it's like those rug stores where all the rugs are always on sale, but exactly. they're still really expensive. Exactly. But I feel like it gives a lot of stress to a lot of It's totally stressful. One hundred percent stressful. Go go buy Ron's book and then yeah. he'll make it less stressful. Okay. 